Welcome to Vertiguys. I am Eric. I am Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We are your hosts in this journey through the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and today, Preacher. Son of a Preacher Man. Or, well, Preacher Man. <laughs> or just... <laughs> the son of the father of a Preacher Just man? Preacher, I guess. <laughs> The one. <laughs> Father of the son of a preacher man. Trogdor was a man. <laughs> right, no, it's exactly that. <laughs> it's the same joke. Alright, today we are covering a story arc that does not have a formal name. It was collected in a trade paperback under the title War in the Sun. And that is a fairly accurate description. Previously on Preacher... Jesse had made a deal with the Saint of Killers, the unkillable cowboy angel of death who's chasing him. Jesse bought his life in exchange for finding out why the Saint's family was killed a hundred years ago. In New Orleans, Jesse used some voodoo to find out why. God arranged for the Saint's family's deaths to push him into becoming the angel of death. Do you want to, like, do some questions at the end of that and then just give him humorous answers like Hub? <laughs> I didn't really want to. No, let's, let's not. We can't beat him at that game. Okay. So today we're covering Preacher issues 34 through 37. The first one of those is issue 34. Let me check your math on that. That's right. Now, all four of these issues were written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, and colors by Pamela Rambo. And of course, covers by Glenn Fabry. So there will be no need for us to go through the credits at the beginning of every one of them. Now on the first cover, we have Jesse and Tulip looking around, and in the background... The eyes of hair star. I don't... Where's Tulip? I wrote, Jesse is with a mysterious blonde. <laughs> the Tulip faces on the cover continue to not look all that much like Tulip, but that's who she is, folks. Or that much like each other. And the hair is really off, too. So it's Jesse and a mysterious blonde just hanging out under the stars. Jesse's collar pins look really good, though. Yeah, I mean, it's great art of Jane Fonda. <laughs> So last we left our heroes, they were driving westward in a big red pickup with flame decals. We open on that truck pulled over in the desert. Why were they doing that? The answer, like so many things in life, is peyote. He's not wrong. From under a tarp in the back of the truck, Cassidy asks why they stopped so suddenly. Why'd you stop? Because you're a dick. That explains most of the stuff that goes on in Late Preacher, but not this. <laughs> Jesse is out of the truck. He's staring over a ridge. Something's gonna happen here. What do you mean, Jesse? What's gonna happen? Dunno, exactly. Something. And we turn the page to find a double-page spread as they are entering Monument Valley. Now, this double-page spread was, without obviously the title text here and Jesse's dialogue, was what they used as the memorial Steve Dillon page when he died back in 2016. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a beautiful vista, and he's really captured a unique place on the surface of the Earth. Hell yes. So we look at that for as long as we need to. You know, minutes, hours, days. And then we turn the page again. Like most tourists, we then find ourselves in a hotel room. Right, where Hairstar, who really just has loads of time on his hands these days, is watching MTV. He's watching TV while Featherstone is working, and he is, of course, as we last left him, in Rene Belloc cosplay. He's wearing a white suit and a white and red Panama hat. Well, the white suit and the red tie are actually his uniform. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's taken to wearing this Panama hat to cover the fact that his head looks like a great big Johnson. Because Jesse carved a slash right down the middle of his bald head. Yeah. 
I do think it's funny that he's sitting here complaining about the TV while Featherstone is working. <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. I think that really sums things up. He's kind of a prick. He's watching a music show which is talking about the new sensation in music, which is... Arsface! Oh, you pronounced it this time. Arsface! I just want to comment here. This lady's just hanging out in a bra. <laughs> like... The VJ. Yeah, she's apparently the VJ. I guess that's the way she's decided to dress for this show. Or she has been asked to dress for this show. It's just a skirt and a bra. It's definitely not a bikini top. It's definitely a bra. Every time we see somebody watching television in Preacher, it's usually pretty biting commentary on TV. Like, the content that's on TV is, does not generally meet Garth Ennis' approval, with the exception of old John Wayne movies. Yeah, so what we find out here is that basically... Everybody loves Arseface, and he really resonates with the kids of this era. One guy is really excited that he spit on his face accidentally at one point. And I just, I wondered if this was Garth Ennis just, like, savagely biting into, like, young people. Every teenager so, who talks about Arseface on this page is insipid. Yeah. I looked it up. Garth Ennis was 28. Okay. At this time. Is that old enough to have contempt for MTV's viewing audience? I mean, like... He would have been a teenager, like, when it came around, though, right? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe he doesn't have contempt for MTV in general, although maybe he does. Lots of teenagers fancy themselves wise for their years. Mm -hmm. That's not that uncommon. But certainly I could imagine him being sort of offended by the music of the late 90s. I mean, most of us were. Yeah, well, this page certainly aligns Arseface as a grunge parody. Critic Tom Vader here. I think what we're seeing here is the logical progression of the Seattle sound, both in Arseface's decision to cover modern favorites and, more directly, visually. Yeah. Tom Vader looks kind of like Nicolas Cage, and you kind of made him sound like Nicolas Cage, too. <laughs> that was entirely by accident. I didn't even notice the resemblance until just now. I think this is a crack against the doors here as well, where the guy says that it's another quantum leap in music, just like Elvis Presley picking up a guitar, the Beatles doing acid, or Jim Morrison taking a bath. I don't get that joke. Is Jim Morrison... He died in a bathtub. Okay, so he's <laughs> saying it was a quantum leap forward when Jim Morrison died and stopped making music. Yes, okay, he was found by Pamela Corson in his bathtub... No autopsy was ever performed, and the cause of Jim Morrison's death remains unknown. Okay. So, Arseface is now on the show. They have an interview with Arseface. His answers are understandably short and to the point. So, has this whole thing been, like, a big surprise to you? Yeah! Right. So, you think you're going to be as big coast-to-coast -coast as you are here in New Orleans? Hubzo! I think what young Arseface is trying to say is that we're in negotiation with a number of major labels all with a view to buying out the boy's current recording contract at Georgia Records. That's your own company, isn't it, Mr. Sergeant? You are correct, miss. So what is it about Arseface exactly? Where would you say his appeal comes from? Folks tend to respond to music that reflects their own feelings and beliefs. Judging by trends in youth culture over the last decade, I would say that Arseface fills that need for young people in America better than any other artist working today. But what is it he's saying, exactly? I have absolutely no idea, miss. I think I'm going to shoot the television again, Featherstone. Star has a problem with discharging his weapon in confined quarters. And he's got his gun out! <laughs> he actually takes it out? I didn't realize that. And Featherstone is just, please don't, Hair Star. And she shoots it with the remote control before he can shoot it with a pistol. Anyway. Oh, I wrote LOL Jim Morris. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> Oh, it's so callous! Anyway, Featherstone jumps in with good news. The presidential order just arrived. Very prompt, I must say. Democrats are smarter. They know just how high to jump. He's also pleased to see that the ink is still wet. Anyway, Star starts explaining his evil plan to Featherstone. You smell that? That's the smell of president ink. It smells like victory. <laughs> it smells like auto pen. <laughs> I fucking hope he did not open this, given what we find out the order is. Jesus. <laughs> Star's plan is called The Fall of Jesse Custer. And recalling that the angel in Cell 99, back in the Masada story arc, told Jesse to look to the first Americans for instructions on how to reach Genesis, Star has had every Native American reservation watched. 
Jesse and company arrived in, I'm going to say, Chinel. That's my guess. Arizona last night. No, you don't have to guess. He's been he's been watched. And left for Monument Valley this morning. Yeah, he's got six teams and a Colonel Holden all ready to go. Featherstone recalls that they used to shoot westerns there. Stagecoach, the searchers. You know, John Wayne. Typical American hero. Brash, loud, crudely simplistic approach to any given situation. Always wins. A detail, Featherstone. Uh, it's worth pointing out that John Wayne was not loud. He was soft-spoken. That's a valid point, yeah. Part of his manly appeal. And Star goes over his new plan for capturing Jesse Custer, which is plan A again. Capture Tulip and force him to obey. Yeah, Father Stone says that they tried it before. He says only with Cassidy. And by the way, I'm going to get that Cassidy. So, yeah, Hairstar holds a grudge pretty hard against the people that he has wronged. <laughs> Even though they have really done very little to him. Well, I guess his head does look like a dick. <laughs> yeah, the, he has a personal grudge now. And he puts on the hat and he looks like Hair Star, which he's also a dick. So, yeah. This time I guarantee it. He falls. Perhaps Star should have said he's going down? Oh, look what you did. Tell you him. took a podcast about this perfectly good and uplifting comic book, and you made it something smutty. Have you seen the next page? We cut to a different hotel room where Tulip has just been enjoying what 80% of American men won't do. 80% of American men are dumb as posts. I... Huh. That number seems high to you? Let's... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that's not my problem with it. Go ahead. It might be a conservative estimate. <laughs> yeah, so they're all naked. They're reminiscing. It's been ten years since they first met. By God, ten years and still as pretty as the morning. After things are settled, Jesse suggests, how about we keep on driving till we've seen the whole wide world and keep on loving till it ends. Tulip asks if he would abandon this quest and take off with her if she asked. Honey, you know I would, if you asked me. So Jesse's planning to get some peyote and drop it in, Mon in Monument Valley. I don't mean leave it on the ground. That way he gets direct access to Genesis, he finds out where God is, which Genesis knows, and then he can go there and kick his celestial ass. Peyote, Navajo rituals, all sounds a bit new age to me. It's just a big magic mushroom. What next? Visit a sweat lodge? Do some chanting? Jesse Custer, fully rounded new man, accepting his place within the cosmos. Ho, ho, ho. Sneer all you like, you already eat pussy. Jesse protests, and Tulip relents, saying, Relax, Reverend, you're beyond reconstruction. They start talking about the South. Tulip is undiplomatically suggesting here that she's surprised Jesse isn't a, a real... Bumpkin. A real... Yeah, a bumpkin. A real walking redneck stereotype. <laughs> he has a line here I like. He says, You don't start raping canoeists just because you had grits for breakfast. She points out Angelville and Jody and TC and Billy Bob. Jesse says none of that changed him. In an ever-changing world, I am the one thing you can rely on. Wow! That's a bit of a self-aggrandizing line. <laughs> no shit. She reminds him of when she couldn't rely on him when he skipped out on her in France. Once again, we have to talk about sodding France. <laughs> Badly phrased love, he puts it, and she smirks at him. That's a terrible line. So they fuck. <laughs> and while well, they're that's fucking, love, man. And while they're fucking, she says, don't ever change, don't ever leave. Oh, man. The foreshadowing's getting heavy. Oh, yeah. Cut to black over Jesse's response. Uh-uh. As she says, don't ever leave. Yeah, something bad is about to happen. Okay, so it's time for Featherstone and Hairstar to meet Colonel Holden. Star refuses to take his hat off. Yeah, understandably. He shares his poor evaluation of the troop's discipline and readiness, and Holden says he's going to kick Star's ass. Yeah, I like this guy. Sergeant Goodman, call the motor pool and have him send over a tire iron. I'm going to need it to get my boot out of this crowd, son of a bitch's ass. So they try telling him that they work for a NATO think tank, but he knows that the whole mission briefing he's been given is a bunch of lies, and they end up having to smooth it over by showing him the note from the president. This is the second time it's come up, and we still don't know what's in it. Yeah, Holden is really not happy with this. They're covering their movements under the guise of an exercise, but his orders also say strong possibility of terrorist threat. But 
the orders say nothing of substance as to what they're doing or what the threat is, and he doesn't know where Star comes from and doesn't trust him. He says he's not handing U.S. troops over to a couple civilians, but the presidential order, according to Star, will render any questions you might have irrelevant. Meanwhile, back at the hotel, Tulip is returning with groceries, and Cassidy appears from the shadows, and it seems like he's going to be an asshole again. Cassidy has been repeatedly catching Tulip alone to hit on her to tell her that he's in love with her, and he thinks she's in love with him. She's told him repeatedly that she's not interested at all. And implore her to leave Jesse for him. Which she has been studiously not telling Jesse, even though, as she said many times, she probably should. Yeah, because Cassidy's stabbing him in the back. They smile in your face! So, when he starts this conversation, she starts to tell him to fuck off. But then he starts, he doubles over, he starts having some kind of episode. She wonders if it's a vampire thing. It's the fucking DTs, Tulip, he says with pride. I haven't had a drink since we left New Orleans. He says that she was right when she said the booze makes him an eejit. And he apologizes for his many passes at her. He says he knows she and Jesse belong together. But she is unconvinced by his new leaf. She says it's not as simple as just forgiving him. Even if you had said all that stuff to me, and I can't pretend you didn't, I can't just not worry about you trying it again. There's something Xavier said as well. Xavier! I know about you and his ex. Shite. And there's what happened to Janice because of you. Uh, So Xavier was the voodoo expert that Jesse consulted in New Orleans, and his girlfriend Janice was fatally shot by some evil goth kids who were after Cassidy that Cassidy failed to tell anybody about. And there's what Xavier told me, which is that this is you. That this shit happens in your wake. Yeah, she says, I've seen the front you put up, and I've seen a little of what's behind it, and I wonder if there are things you've done down the years that might even be a hundred times worse. Oh, Jesus. If you knew. Cassidy admits that his past is a horror story, but he hopes he can change. Helping Jesse with his job of his, Jesus, even knowing a guy like him, it might be my last chance to do something good. Yeah, he has a line here about the past not mattering, that it's the future that matters. And that's a line that Jesse reiterates almost word for word a little later on. She's still not sure, and he swears that if he fucks up again, he'll leave on his own. For Christ's sake, Cassidy, get off your fucking knees. He is literally on his knees at this point, worth mentioning. She's basically not giving him a chance here, recognizing even his attempt to turn over a new leaf as basically aimed at winning her approval, winning her love. Maybe somewhat. I think it's also part of what Xavier said, which is that he's just weak. He tries to be good, and he's bad at it. Mm, okay. Anyway, at a diner, Jesse is meeting with a drug dealer. Yeah, he uh, buys some peyote from a young Native American guy. You can tell that this is a drug dealer because he has two extra buttons of his shirt unbuttoned. So what do I do with it exactly? Do? You just eat it, man. Eat it, try not to puke too much of it up. I thought there might be some kind of ceremony or something. Hey, I don't know, man. You want to pay my granddad $50, he'll come and chant some shit over you. Won't get you any higher. So, the comic's being pretty dismissive of the idea that Native American religion is a thing. Of course, to be fair, it treats Christianity much worse. And at the time, maybe it was something of a subversion to portray the Native American characters as not believing in this. Right, they're kind of hip and worldly instead of... The heavily mystical portrayals that we usually see. Right. Um, do we want to talk about this line about a different Custer? Right. Before he leaves, this uh, drug dealer guy says that Jesse's name is well known on the reservation. Different Custer. He was the dumb one, liked getting his ass kicked. That's referring to Custer's last stand. Oh, of course. Okay. Outside, we find Jesse staring into the valley, and coming up behind him is the Duke. Must be kind of like coming home for you, huh? I reckon so. He's here with a warning. Hard times ahead. Jesse says he can feel it coming, too. He asks how bad it'll get, and John Wayne says as bad as it can. Got the grit for it, Pilgrim? I reckon so. Elsewhere, we find an old Native American guy walking around, drunk, and he runs into an unseen character. He asks if he's going up a valley, and what he's going to do there. And on the final page of the issue, we get the Saint of Killers... His big ugly mug. Most likely kill every living thing I find. And he leaves the old man 
doubled over and gagging, it seems like, but there's no blood. So I don't know if he shot him or just scared the shit out of him. I think he just scared the shit out of him. That brings us to preacher number 35, You and Me Against the World. On the cover, we see the saint of killers striding through Monument Valley. Oh, man, what a great cover. And I make fun of Glenn Fabry sometimes, but so many of these are just great covers. His guns are huge on this cover, too. Uh, Not his arms, he's wearing a coat. I mean, his revolvers. Yeah. We open on Star Walking, zoom in on Star. I have an erection. We see he's surrounded by tanks. There's that virility thing again. Yeah, we talked about that in our One Man's War special episode. Oh, my note on the hair star thing, I wrote, takes all kinds. I mean, you know, people with all sorts of kinks. I don't want oh, to kink shame him. It takes all kinds to make a world, Sean. All right, yeah. In the diner, we find Cassidy and Tulip talking again. He is still pleading. Tulip tells him, you can't help it, you're weak. She also says this is his last chance. Fuck up and she'll tell Jesse everything, whether he leaves or not. Yeah, and he seems to immediately kind of take shelter in the narrative that he's weak. Which is not to say that necessarily makes it not true, but... Right, he admits that he's been weak in the past, that he's fucked things up he tried to do right. But this time he says everything's gonna be alright, and there's a fantastic whatever man face on Tulip here. Yep. Jesse arrives. Brethren. Yeah, I... I... Wrote that down. I thought it was interesting that he addresses Tulip and Cassidy as brethren. There's a funny exchange here. Cassidy says, And where have you been to this hour, young man? Buying drugs. Watching the sun go down on the valley. Did you think deep thoughts? Just the same old shallow ones. I'm amused that Cassidy comes at him with the parental attitude and he says, Buying drugs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He says he wants to take the truck out to look at Monument Valley. Tulip says she's too tired. I'll come with you, but no holding hands. That about breaks my heart. This is a setup that we've seen a bunch of times before. Jesse and Cassidy go out somewhere to to hang out or to party, and Tulip stays behind. Even though she's not trusting Cassidy, she's letting this happen. Yeah, she likes to go to bed early. (laughs) She likes to get her reading done. I guess so. As they ride into the valley, Jesse reveals the duffel bag full of liquor he brought. Hell, who'd ever be dumb enough to come to an Indian reservation and not bring his own liquor along? Who, indeed. I think I've decided to see if I can get as many Jesse accents into a Preacher episode as I usually get Constantine accents. Okay. All right, challenge accepted. No, I don't... This is a bad thing. Let's do this. This is terrible. Here we go. Back at the base, Holden is still doubting Star and Featherstone's mission. We can tell that uh, it's still approximately the same time because the sun is just progressively going down with each page. Right, and they're ordering the area cleared of civilians by 9.30, which is to say next morning. Holden is particularly shocked at the description of the terrorists they're looking for. Main target, seven feet tall, male, wide-brimmed hat, knee-length duster coat, antique revolvers. Then I read it again to see who else we should look for, like maybe sitting fucking bull chasing a stagecoach over the hill. Just what are you people trying to pull here anyway? Star looks worried. Are you talking about the last panel of the next page? Uh, well, he looks kind of worried here, but then he looks worried again on the next page. Well, I think that the kind of reversal that happens here is kind of interesting, where Star starts off, he comes on pretty strong, trying to put this guy in his place. I don't care if you like me, loathe me, or masturbate screaming my name. You are here to follow my orders. If even half of your dried-up redneck brain is functioning, you'll have checked the document I gave you with both your immediate superiors and the State Department and confirmed that it is completely genuine. Therefore, when I say classified, what you hear is fuck off and do as you're told. When you have a question, or worse, an opinion, you shove it firmly up your rancid crack. And if you harbor any ambitions above Colonel, you should regard this as excellent advice. But Holden shoves his face in Star's face, and Star is surprised and frightened. I think. It seems like that's what he's what he's looking like. I got your number, you little cocksucker. And he basically explains to Star that he has no career ambitions because he refuses to kiss ass. And furthermore, that if even one of his people gets hurt, he will kill Star. Yeah. So you read this as Star being suitably intimidated by that speech. I kind of took it another way where Star 
as a result of this chewing out and the colonel standing his ground, Star develops a little crush on him, I think. You think? Yeah, I think that's what we're getting here. Featherstone tells Star that he has 50 men at his command, all told, and Star, distracted, says, What? I mean, right. See, I thought on the next page here, as he's shouting orders to the Samson units, that he's sort of reasserting his masculinity by being able to order around somebody. He could be. He's not a man. He's a fucking bulletproof killing machine. One look in his eyes and I was so scared I almost filled my pants with shit, Featherstone says. <laughs> it's not just one man, damn it! <laughs> That's not what I thought she said, but okay. <laughs> Sorry, I know I was doing... That's the, the thrust it's of... Zora! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thrust of it. But then Featherstone says, <laughs> Featherstone. Oh, what is Featherstone says? There's a precedent then? Right, so she sees him pretty scared right now. I thought she implied. So we come back <laughs> to uh, Jesse and Cassidy. They are drinking Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey, sitting on the hood of the truck and watching the sunset over Monument Valley. Right, despite his promise to quit drinking, now that he's alone with Jesse and the bottles, Cassidy has put away about half of a bottle of Jack Daniels. Right, I mean, and to refuse would involve having to explain to Jesse why he's not drinking anymore. It would be a whole difficult thing. I sort of see how he got into this situation. Right. I want to call out the colors Basically throughout this issue, as the as we get a lot of the sun going down over Monument Valley, that's sort of a continuous timekeeping thing throughout the issue, and colorist Pamela Rambo is doing uh, awesome work here. Normally I sort of miss Matt Hollingsworth when he's not doing colors on this book, but not in this issue. So what we find them up to is that they are demonstrating their impressions of one another. Cassidy's doing his terrible Jesse. God damn it! What the hell is this goddamn grail shit, goddammit? Holy shit, no wonder you got caught. What the fuck part of Texas are you from? Jesse then launches into his own Cassidy impression, which is amazing. I mean, it's an amazing impression, and it's also one of the best things in this comic. Sure, all you do is listen carefully to the fella's intonation and delivery, and reproduce it as faithfully as you can. In the case of the Irish, a certain level of nasal loin is fucking essential. Jesse reminds Cassidy of what he had said on the Empire State Building. You could jump off and land anywhere in America, and the adventure could begin. Yeah, he explains that it's Monument Valley that puts him in an empire state of mind. This is America to me, Cass. Right out of the movies. He tells Cassidy that he was here once before with Tulip. Back in their bad old days. Cassidy says Jesse shouldn't carry the weight of the world on his shoulders. That just leads to idealism, and idealism's shite. The best you can do in this cold old world is grab what's yours and hold on to it tight. Anything else is bollocks. He sort of randomly relates this to treatment of Native Americans. He's sort of half-justifying historical atrocities, saying every country was built on killing. But he also sort of takes the position that a PC term in a reservation doesn't make it any better, isn't enough to make up for it. Yeah, I mean, Cassidy is from a colonized place. That's right. You know? Yeah, and he, and he literally fought, you know, the oppressors when he was 16. Yeah, and... He decided pretty quickly then that he thought idealism was bullshit. Well, yeah, that's right. We saw that in his origin story in Creature 25 and 26. This is a good scene for setting out the difference between Cassidy and Jesse. Because Jesse is really an idealist. He's an idealist who can kick your ass, but he's not selfish because he's not a cynic. Right, and Jesse retorts. Right. Well, that sure is one bleak way of looking at things. But it ain't changing the past I'm interested in. It's doing the right thing now. Why? Way too much bad in the world not to, Cass. So this is almost a direct quote, or it's a pretty close paraphrase of his father's lesson to him. You've got to be one of the good guys because there's way too many of the bad. That's right. Cassidy tells him that he's outnumbered, that there's a dozen bad guys for everyone you knock down, and Jesse just says that's no excuse. If there's even a chance his mission to track down God could make things better for people, he has to take it. Do you think everyone gets their chance at some time or another? Damn right. Thing that makes us human, you ask me. Hell, even the goddamn saint of killers once had his. Yeah, and here he briefly recaps how the saint of killers, he had a choice, and enough shitty circumstances piled onto him that he eventually made the wrong one. 
Right. He's definitely a monster now, Jesse says. But Jesse has seen how he was pushed as far as a man can be before he made the wrong choice. And the Lord is the one who pushed him there. And I wonder if I lost what he lost. Makes you think. Cassidy protests that Jesse would never do what the Santa Killers did. Okay, do you think that Cassidy knows the Saints' history now that they've shared that information? Or is he just referring to the massacres that we've already seen? I think he's just saying that Jesse would never become a bad guy. Right. Basically. But yeah, we're definitely recapping the Saint of Killers history because it's been a little while since we got it. And it's going to come up next issue. So anyway, they clink their two separate fifths of Jack Daniels. God, don't stand a fucking chance. It's morning, and we find an officer telling a tour group that Monument Valley is closed for the day. Actually, he's telling a group of tour group leaders that they won't be able to make any money today. Right. I appreciate this scene. kind of smartly lampshades the unlikelihood of a big action set piece happening to take place in Monument Valley. Yeah, and he says that the Air Force lost some equipment in the area last night, and they can't risk people going in there. Star is monitoring all this from a helicopter. There are Samson units already concealed in the valley, and the main force, Holden's tank force, will arrive in two and a half hours. Anytime you're ready, Custer. Which brings us to Jesse waking up in the bathtub. You very kindly volunteered to sleep there so I wouldn't have to smell you. You reek of bourbon. Rise and shine, you got a massive dose of hallucinogens to take. Me and Cass sort of tied one on last night. Cassidy was drinking? Why wouldn't he be? So now we find uh, Bob Dix, an idiot diplomat arriving in Monument Valley, to help Star oversee the operation. Basically, here is evidence that the president is ready and willing to serve. Bob Dix obviously has a joke name. Yeah. Star foists him off on Featherstone, and she comes back and asks him basically what the hell this is about. Oh, that little arsehole is just here to stop me from doing anything too dreadful. Some fucking hope. Still, that direct line to the White House might be useful, and that jet of his, if a certain extreme measure I've set up, becomes necessary. And at that moment... He spots the truck. Yeah, Jesse's pickup truck pulling into the middle of the valley. Star says, we have to separate him from the woman. Do you think he's talking about the mystery woman from the Glenn Fabry cover? (laughs) Don't be Bob Dix. (laughs) Alright, fair enough. I also want to point out here what I thought was hilarious, that Star's code name, Star's radio call sign in this operation, is Almighty. That's humble. Yeah. Well, and it's good. It's funny, but it's also, I think, effective as a... I mean, Jesse is looking for a big showdown with the Almighty. And what he keeps getting instead is big showdowns with Hair Star. Yeah, that's a good point. Because Hair Star has his own plan for him. Yeah. So, Jesse takes the peyote. Tarp. He does not take the peyote, does he? Uh, he puts it in his hand and says that he probably really has to do it. I don't think he takes it. I think that what's going to happen is going to conspire to stop him from doing that at this phase of the story. Okay, see, I never saw the peyote again. I just assumed he was high the whole rest of the story. No, no, the only reason he's incapacitated is because the Santa Killers chucks him later on. Okay, okay. So Tulip takes the opportunity of Jesse being busy to go up to the tarp and yell at Cassidy for drinking. This drama is quickly becoming a hindrance in a serious moment. So I fell off the wagon for a second, Jesus. That doesn't mean I'm going to turn instantly into a prick. Says who? Tulip suddenly notices and points out to Jesse, the saint of killers. Preacher. Title drop! (laughs) Jesse tells Cassidy to sit this one out, lest you want to get yourself one hell of a tan. Don't you dare try to leave me behind this time. Matter of fact, ain't no one I'd rather have backing me up. They kiss, and she says, let's go. Which brings us to Preacher number 36. Come and get it. Cover this time, Jesse and Tulip looking into the camera... Tulip smiling has her arms around Jesse's neck and a revolver in both hands pointed at the camera. Tulip is about to shoot you. Tulip is about to shoot you. And Jesse approves of the shooting that will imminently take place. He thinks he had it coming. And Jesse on this cover looks a lot like actor James Franco, don't you think? Yeah. Was he famous yet in 1998? I don't know. It's possible he was a model. Jesse and Tulip walking up to meet the saint. Despite drawing her gun at the end of the last issue mere moments ago, Tulip doesn't have it in her hand anymore. Uh, she doesn't have it in the hand that we can see. We got a full page spread here, which doubles as the title page of the Saint of Killers. He is a powerful, ugly creature. And he's just standing there staring and waiting. He's literally both powerful and ugly. 
Holden and the tanks are rolling up in the distance. Star evaluates the situation. Samson's can't attack with the saint there, because he'll just kill them, and the tanks can't attack without hitting Custer or Tulip. Tricky. They can't kill Jesse, because then they kill Jesse. They can't kill Tulip, because then they can't control Jesse. It's a tricky situation. And they can't kill the Santa Killers, because they can't kill They the literally Santa can't killers. do it, yeah. He thinks he might be able to do it with the tanks, but he can't try it right now, because the Saint's standing too close to Jesse to Custer. Right. <laughs> Sorry. The Saint, by the way, expects that the Scarred Man, which is to say Star, will have followed Jesse. But regardless, the two of them have unfinished business. I found out some things. You ain't gonna like him. Jesse knows all about the Saint's origin story, his family, Ratwater, McCready. But them boys, McCready and his scum, they wouldn't have even been there if the Lord hadn't sent that storm to put him in your way. He made it happen. He knew what you were like, what you'd do. He knew what you'd agree to become if he could fix things just right. And we get a cutaway shot here of the Saint finding the bodies of his wife and daughter being feasted on by scavenger birds. Right, his cowboy-hatted silhouette in the door and the crow-eaten skeletons of his family. This is a much more graphic version of this scene than we've yet seen. As a matter of fact, I don't think we've ever seen this exact scene before. Yeah, yeah, we saw a crow on a bedpost before, but we never saw the bodies. Right. It goes back to... I think a comment that I've made before on this podcast that Garth Ennis has a great gift for like jumping around in time and flashing back while still showing us new scenes. You know, mm-hmm. he's not generally rehashing the same scenes over and over again. He often has a talent for recapping a story by showing us scenes from that story that we actually haven't seen before. Right. So here we have a scene that we understood the implication of before, but now we get the full horror of it as we understand the full horror of the Lord's plan for the saint. We see just the intense anger on the saint of killer's face as he learns who did this to him. And then he says, turning away, we're even, preacher. Right, Jesse says, forget the deal. They've all been wronged by God. They can't walk away from it. He wants the saint to join him on his mission? Yeah. God damn it, we gotta take that asshole down. He puts a hand on the saint's shoulder to stop him. Mistake. Yeah. Santa Killers tosses him about five yards. Yeah, just backhands him with one hand and he goes flying. At this moment, Star realizes that the Saint's headed right for the tanks. He calls to warn Holden and orders the Samsons to go after Custer. At first, Holden doesn't see anything. Your guess is as good as mine. And then, coming out of the dust... Six actual from Butcher. We have visual on an individual matches the description. He's, uh... He's... Fight me! The Saint of Killers, enraged by what he has just learned, is ready to take on Star's entire force. They fire a tank shell right into his chest. I gotta admit, I always wanted to try this, says the gunner. The smoke clears Dragon Ball Z style, and he's completely unharmed. The Saint fires one bullet into a tank that pierces the armor and hits the shell as the crew are reloading, and the tank explodes from the inside out. That's a hell of a good shot! Yeah, that's really cool. We also get a great panel of chatter coming from all the tanks as they can't believe what they're seeing. There's a lot of that in this issue, but... Yeah, the soldiers are panicking. Holden orders them to fire everything, and he tells his driver, Get me to Star! Yep, one of his men has been killed, because they weren't prepared for what they had to face. So, it's time for German liver for dinner. At one point, one of the tank guys yells to another, Load Sabbat! It's actually, Sabbat is a general term. The specific shell he's referring to is an M829. That's a depleted uranium anti-tank round. Oh, okay, so they're upgrading to a higher ordinance. Right, they've already tried standard munitions on the Saints of Killers. Now they're going to try depleted uranium shells. I could talk a little about how depleted uranium shells work, okay? because I looked it up. They are not as some people might think, effective because they are radioactive. In fact, their radioactivity is only, really, it's only just enough to make them somewhat hazardous for the soldiers using them. Okay. Depleted uranium works because it is more dense than standard munitions, and it's also flammable. So it's... A giant, hardened, fast-moving incendiary round. Oh, okay. We will see how that works out for them. The saint keeps shooting, killing guys inside tanks, or blowing the tanks up whole. 
What the fuck is that asshole set loose, Holden says, and then his driver is hit, and the jeep crashes. Tulip is feeling kind of overwhelmed by the odds. She doesn't know quite what she's going to do, but then she sees the military vehicle that just crashed. She sees the great big gun, and like Frank Castle, she says, Give me the 60. (laughs) Actually, she says, Ooh, which I I liked that a lot. She's getting kind of an action hero moment that would normally be reserved for, like, your Schwarzenegger or your Stallone. And bringing her along as backup turned out to be a great idea. Yeah, she doesn't quite get there yet. Saint of Killers continues to slaughter dudes. We should probably mention at some point that she's trying to carry the unconscious Jesse out of the field of engagement. Yeah, and she doesn't know how she's going to do it. I think the vehicle part of the vehicle, as well as the gun part of the vehicle, is what catches her eye. When they see her booking towards the military vehicle, a couple of the Samson units open fire, and Tulip goes down. No! You stupid cocksucker Samson 4! I needed her alive! Cassidy looks up from the bed of the truck, sees Jesse and Tulip down. Hang on, children. Cassidy's coming. Very fucking carefully. He's gotta hide from the sunlight. His fingers catch fire here as he... Slips just momentarily. Right, he's trying to get out of the bed of the truck to go help. Still wrapped up in this tarp. Samson's go for Jesse, only Tulip wasn't hit. Once they're ignoring her, she springs up and runs for the 60. Samson won, watch your flank, the bitch was only faking. Almighty say again, all after your... Too late, as the Samson unit is ripped apart by the machine gun fire. Uh, Mr. Star? Bob Dix, we met earlier. I was wondering if I could interlude for a minute. Sir, I just wanted to say how excited I am, how excited we all are that the exercise has begun. Uh, It is really a very exciting time here. I was hoping you could facilitate a clarification on the issue of, uh, well, as regards to the situation vis-a-vis what we're looking at now. He's trying to ask if things are all fucked up in as polite a way as possible. Star just pokes him in the eye. Star just puts a guy's eye out for a laugh, showing that he, who is defining trauma, is losing an eye, has no compassion or ethics whatsoever, just wants to be the one who's doing onto others. <laughs> I don't know if he, like, took that guy's eye out. I, I think we actually see him, him clutching it later, and he he's not screaming in pain, so it's hurt, but not permanently out. Although it does look like there's a spray of blood on this page. Maybe that's just a motion line. Cassidy, meanwhile, is driving the pickup to try to rescue Jesse and Tulip. But then he catches a bit of sun on his hand, he catches fire, and crashes the pickup into a rock. Shite! He yells, flying through the air. The Uh, saint here shoots a tank, which causes it to misfire around, which hits the pickup, blowing Cassidy into the air. And he sprawls broken on the sand, still in the sunlight. He gets a lot of air on that one. Yeah, they're kind of using Cassidy for a bit of physical black comedy here. Even though it's a serious situation, it's like Cassidy's getting horrifically injured and we know it hurts him but it's not gonna permanently hurt him surveying the situation star decides i half expected the tanks wouldn't be enough but nil desperandum plan b i think Dix, get me the president of the united states of america on the cover of preacher number 37 the shatterer of worlds we have cassidy on his knees in the sun on fire he's looking really bad i wrote burning man that's in a different desert, but whatever. <laughs> Wait, are you telling me you know more than one desert on the North American continent? No. <laughs> That's like Death Valley, right? Not Monument Valley. They're two different valleys, anyway. Oh, hell if I know. <laughs> they might be the same desert. We open on a B-2 Spirit stealth bomber soaring over the desert. Yeah, and we get... Oh, man, what a great panel this is. I called it Tank Kick. Yeah, so... Tank a driver yells, Crush the motherfucker! And they try to run the saint over with a tank, and he just stops it with a kick. The boot. And then puts several bullets into the cockpit, killing everyone. Star is on the phone, wheedling the president. The measure I arranged with you has become necessary after all. You will give the order now, or you will suffer the wrath of the grail. And when the president is still reluctant, Star adds, Yes, I know your daughter is guarded everywhere she goes. Who do you think is going to do the shooting? president's daughter's been threatened it's up to us it's up to us so he hears the president say something on the other end of the line and he says whether god forgives you is irrelevant do it now man the president's having this really hard decision moment and we are only hearing star's side of the conversation star has no compassion for hair star is being a real hair star about it (laughs) 
I just, I like that line because it implies that there's much more drama going on in the other end of the phone line, which we aren't seeing. Son of a bitch hits like a fucking Mack truck. Jesse finally comes to. He was out for an issue, basically, right? No, not a whole issue. Yeah, he had a little conversation with the with the SOK at the beginning of the last issue. But yeah, he was out for a while. And it, a lot of it was a protracted action sequence, which is still going on. The attack is still going on. <laughs> Jesse sees Tulip in trouble. She's still on the top of the Jeep with the M60. And he asks, Tulip, honey, where's Cass? He's probably not happy with that being his question of choice. She guns down some Samsons, and he gets others with the word. Fuck off, you assholes! Forever? <laughs> Jesse tells Tulip to see if the Jeep runs while he goes looking for Cassidy. And she goes, aw. Yeah, I think she thinks it's kind of cute that he's so devoted. Oh, that's a, you read that as a cute aw? I read that as a, we're not leaving him here aw? <laughs> no, I, I didn't catch it that way. I mean, maybe that's what it is. Star explains the concept of maximum deniability to Bob Dix by shooting him. I wrote, DICKED! Yeah. Bob Dix just got dicked but good by, uh... A dick! By a real dick! He's being a real hair star. <laughs> I, yeah, I just think that that's... You know what? That could be a term now for someone who is just a total asshole. Like... I think that's fair. He is the embodiment of an asshole. He's being a real hair star in this well, issue. He's not the embodiment of an asshole in this comic book. Oh, okay. Alright. He's the embodiment of a dick. Arseface is the embodiment. But Arseface is an okay guy, though. That's a very good point. Star starts barking an evacuation order at Featherstone, but then the two Samsons at his side get shot in the head. You scumfuck. Meanwhile, the tanks begin to retreat, but the saint continues to slaughter them anyway. The hell with you. Jesse finds Cassidy smoldering in a crater... His legs are broken. Jesse manages to get his coat over Cassidy and start carrying him to the Jeep. Jay! Hope! Jesse had a line here that I thought was funny. Fuck, we don't just dip you in Factor 30. I never do know. <laughs> Tulip's got the Jeep running, but not for very long. Jesse, this thing's a wreck. The engine will die any second. Jesse urges her to book it before Cassidy cooks in the sun. Honey, we gotta go now or old Cass is gonna cook like a roach in the electric chair. Hit it! Colonel Holden and Star are fighting. Star is not winning. Holden pistol whips Star and calls him dickhead by name and dickhead by nature. You fucked up today, boy. You fucked up worse than any half-assed son of a bitch I ever seen commanding soldiers. You knew what that unholy fucking monster could do and you didn't give a shit. And those are my men lying dead out there, goddamn you. So I will, by God, put an end to you here and now, you son of a butt-fucked whore. Well, that's a bit rude. <laughs> um, didn't have to go after his mom. <laughs> <laughs> he fires at the same moment as someone off-panel fires at him. Um, yeah, Holden is just riddled with bullets all of a sudden. And Star takes one in the knee from Holden before he goes down. Shooter was Featherstone? That's Star... what the DA is going to say. Star starts to upbraid her for cutting it close, and she has a speech here. Here, Star, I've just shot a man dead. I've never done it before. I don't like it or how it makes me feel, but I did it in order to save your life. So just for once, I would like some fucking appreciation from you. There's a panel of silence as he is duly chastised. Thank you very much, Featherstone. Now, help me up, and if we're lucky, we can get safely away before the Saint of Killers and this entire valley along with him are utterly vaporized. I like that. They're developing a bit of a respect for each other beyond that which is obligatory in their roles. Speaking of things that are obligatory in your role, the pilot of the bomber... He is debating with control. Yeah, the stealth pilot cannot believe his orders, but he is being told to follow them. You don't have to think about it, or ask questions or anything else. Just follow your orders, son. We'll handle the rest. Jesus fucking Christ. Mustang 1, Fox 3, and a big fat bomb streaks from the bottom of the stealth. We find Jesse and company bumping along hopelessly in the jeep, certain that it'll die at any moment, when they see a private plane. This is Mr. Dick's plane. And Tulip hijacks at a gunpoint. <laughs> now, little lady, this aircraft is the personal transport of Mr. Robert Dix of the United States government. We don't just give free rides to folks, you know. Wrong! Today is the personal transport of the Reverend Jesse Custer and party, so get your fat ass behind the stick, flyboy. Yes, sir. That's my baby. Star sees the plane take off without them. Yeah, this is important because it makes Colonel Holden into a somewhat important character. It is because of his intervening that Star and Featherstone are delayed. 
Right, and they are trying to make their way to the plane on Star's bad knee at this point when they see it take off. Buggery fuck! So they'll have to evacuate on Grail Choppers. He orders Featherstone to get him on one and leave on the other, so that if he dies, someone competent can take over his work. Tell the pilot to proceed at least 30 miles in any direction. Then land, switch off all systems, and engage full NBC seals. And don't restart engines for at least three minutes. Understood? NBC? But that's for... Hair Star, what have you done? What have you done? You think Hair Star really respects Featherstone's ability to take over his work? Yeah, I don't think he would have said it if he hadn't meant it. He's not one for empty flattery. I don't see any way that telling her that increases his chances of survival, so you're probably right. In the private plane, the co-pilot tries to give a warning about the rear door, but it is not heard. Meanwhile, in the back, Jesse's fishing for morphine for Cassidy... And then, Jesus, the pilot says as the bomb streaks past them way too close for comfort. Yeah, the way that they're tilting here, it looks like he kind of has to dodge it almost. The pilots realize what it is and try their best to come up with a plan to counter it. They're going to climb as high as they can and cut the electronics so the EMP doesn't destroy them. Lady, you better strap the hell in and shut up. I've got about a minute to turn this thing into a glider, and if I can't, we're fucked. And to tell you the truth, we're probably fucked anyway. We see the bomb come in, seemingly aimed right for the Saint of Killers' hat. He stares it down, and we get three quarters of a page. Got you this time, bastard. Of a massive nuclear explosion. The stolen plane twists in the air. The rear door pops off. And Jesse falls out of the plane. Cassidy lurches forward and grabs his arm just at the last second. Featherstone's chopper, meanwhile, has landed and cut its electronics, but they don't know if Hairstar survived. The last they heard, his chopper was having engine trouble. Back on Jesse's plane, the co-pilot protests that they're not going to be able to do it, but the pilot tells him to shut up and mutters to the plane, Come on, sweetheart, level up, just for me. Jesse's dangling behind the plane from Cassidy's hand, which begins to catch fire in the sun, and Jesse begs him to let go so they don't both die. You goddamn idiot, we don't both have to die. Let go! Let go! I can't! Not after what I did. Not you! Cass! Tell her I love her! Now let go! This is just such an incredible sequence of events here. Now on those last two words, Jesse puts a little spin of the word of God, and Cassidy lets go. Yeah, and he's burning as he does so. Just... So tragic for Cassidy. He's trying so hard to do the right thing here, you know, for once. And he, like, would have. Except Jesse, thinking that Cassidy is a better guy than he actually is, uses the word of God to save him at the cost of himself. Right. Jesse's the good guy. Jesus, I think we lost someone, says the co-pilot. Yeah, and Tulip is just not even paying attention to the efforts to save the plane anymore. Her eyes go wide. She starts to make her way back. On the ground, the Saint of Killers spits out a tooth. That's what the nuke cost him. I mean, let's do these pages justice. There's a massive mushroom cloud. He's standing in a sea of fire up to his shoulders. Yeah, and his face, lit with intense firelight, is basically unmarred, except for he spits out a tooth. Not enough gun. And then we get three quarters of a page of him just standing in the fire looking awesome as hell. He'll be back. Back in the air. The plane levels off. Tulip stands in the back, staring in horror. The half-burnt-up Cassidy. He, he made me do it. He made me. Tulip clutches her head in her hands. And we're out. Wow. Man, that was a good story. Yeah, just... Such a mastery, both of characters. All of these characters have something interesting going on. And also of action sequences, you know, with lots of different moving parts. The scripting here is so tight and so incredible. And this twist, God, we don't know what's going to happen next. Yeah, yeah. The main character fell out of a plane. The main villain maybe got nuked. One of the main villains got nuked and was pretty chill about the whole thing actually this is not the first big story arc since masada but it's the first one to bring back star and the saint of killers who are basically the two main antagonists of the series two out of three if you count god but he's he's behind the scenes most of the time 
And it lives up to the promise. It moves like nobody's business with the art and the script. It's totally easy to follow. It raises the stakes. The characters all have important things to do, and they all act according to their characters. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, and it brings back that action movie feel that we get during some of the best preacher story arcs where, like I said, there's just these these really well-written and precise action sequences with lots of moving parts where they do a great job of, you know, lining everything up so that the story works in a logical way. I really liked Colonel Holden's Revenge. Mm-hmm. I really liked Tulip getting to just mow fools down. Yeah, that's that always nice. machine gun. Yeah, great comic books here. And we end on Tulip. She's had more and more cause to regret not getting rid of Cassidy, not telling Jesse the truth. She didn't want him coming with them when they left New Orleans, and here he is. And she's just seen Jesse throw away his life for Cassidy's. Well, yeah, all she knows at this point is that Cassidy has let her down again. She is inevitably going to find out that that happened because of the word of God. But I don't know how much better that's going to make her feel about things. That's right. Jesse was taking one unnecessary risk after another to save Cassidy. Yeah, that's right. Because to him, the friendship between the two of them is so like strong and, and real and pure. And, you know, this is a guy who has just constantly behind his back been entreating Tulip to cut Jesse loose and run off the two of them together. Right. Yeah. And can we talk about just how great the foreshadowing is in the first couple of issues of this story arc? You know, the foreshadowing that something dark is coming, that something is going to manage to separate Tulip and Jesse from each other. The president's letter that, you know, we didn't know what it said at first. And Jesse wonders before they go into the valley, before the battle, what he could become if pushed as far as the saint was, what it would take to drive him bad. Right. So as we go forward in the story, assuming assuming that he's not dead, it would be interesting to see where that thread goes. Also a big turnaround for the saint in these issues. Yeah, he really kind of makes a turn. And I guess, arguably, he made this turn back in the Masada arc. When he first agreed to spare Jesse for the moment in exchange for the information about his family. Right. He kind of makes a turn from villain to a really dark anti-hero. Right. Because, I mean, it's American troops, which we don't feel great about, but they're under the command of a Grail guy, and that there's a lot of Grail troops in there, too. Mm -hmm. And it's them that he's fighting throughout this issue. And it's Grail guys that he was fighting mostly in the Masada issues as well. Well, that's right. Well, yeah, the international evil conspiracy gives him an, sort of an endless supply of mooks that he can kill conscience-free. Although back in Masada, it was played for plenty of horror, and here as well. Yeah, we get a real balance between horror and comedy. <laughs> yeah. And he's really not just a villainous presence. He's acting on everyone else in the narrative as an unstoppable force. Right. How far ahead of things are you? Do you know how the Saints' role in the rest of the story is going to play out? I don't. I'm only a few issues ahead at this point. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, yeah, this was this was a great story arc. It was a lot of fun covering it in a single episode. All right, well, in our next Preacher episode, Cassidy and Tulip find themselves in the Badlands. But first, join us next week as the Sandman brushes up on Dinner Etiquette and Chocolate Lovers. Vertigize is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show. I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigize.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter, at Vertigize. You can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. If you have questions, we'd love to answer them on the air. Send us an email, vertigize at gmail.com. Hey, you did it! And we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash vertiguys. Yeah, send us listener questions or your suggestions on Vertiguys Phase 2. That's right, like all good things, Preacher will not last forever. If you're listening to our show on the Apple Podcasts app or anywhere else that allows you to leave ratings and reviews, please leave those five-star ratings 
and uh, those positive reviews to spread the word about Vertiguise. And we'll call out five-star reviews on air. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Why do you wear your sunglasses at night? So I can, so I can read this. You know what you should say, just so that we have it on tape. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a setup? (laughs) If anything happens to us, it was probably Neil Gaiman.